the Tech Canada Leadership Standard, hosted by Tech Speaker of the Year and branding expert, Gare Maxwell. Real life stories from leaders spanning the business spectrum. Now more than ever, leaders are shifting through significant decisions under accelerated timeframes with less information and bigger consequences for their companies, for their people, and for the communities that they live in. You're about to learn of the triumphs, failures, struggles and disruptions through the first-hand account of an industry leader. Join us now for the Leadership Standard. We're about to discover and tap into the power of peer innovation. Who you surround yourself with as a leader actually matters with Leo Batari. And let me see if I can't uh, take a stab at this, Leo. We're all in the same birds of a feather. There you go. And yet, peer influence, and this is the beauty of a podcast, is it allows anyone listening to fill in the blanks, but peer influence is something we've all experienced for a lifetime. We all want to be on the same page, rowing in the same direction, but without a great deal of thought or effort, uh, we kind of know that's what we should be doing. But what Leo, you've done is you've given an awful lot of actual deliberate thought and study on this very subject. In other words, you're a global expert on how peer advantage and the power of peer groups can be used in a way that is selective, strategic and structured. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, pleasure to be here. Great to see you today. Yeah, and, and I, I've just got to start with the epiphany. Uh, every author that I've ever met has an epiphany moment, the aha moment. Well, what's yours giving birth to peer innovation the day you realized you were onto a big idea? Well, it's funny. Peer innovation was kind of an evolution, right? So you think about peer influence and how we influence one another. We think of peer advantage as what happens when we're more selective, strategic, and structured about the people we surround ourselves with. And peer innovation really came out of um, the realization that with all this work uh, that I've been doing, studying CEO peer groups and groups for key executives and how they work together and identifying five factors that make those groups so high performing, it was now looking at the fact that, wow, you know, these same five factors are, are so powerful also for high performing teams. So peer innovation is really about what happens when you get a group of people who bring different viewpoints to the table, bring different skills, but share common values and a common goal and are willing to look at things, you know, more broadly and create something larger than themselves. And I think teams are capable of creating so much. And so I think when it was a matter of looking at these five factors and the aha moment was definitely, wow, this, this is a game changer for teams. And so that's kind of where we are and what we're going to talk about today for a little bit, I hope. Yeah. And can you bring us to that moment? Where were you? Uh, what town? What coffee shop? What was going through your mind when five factors? Why five? I, I'm, I'm always fascinated, Leo, and I think listeners are too, for any author, where did the germ or the seed of the idea come from? I mean, I know you're a James Taylor Shawshank Redemption fan, and those had to have creation stories, but what was yours? <laughs> so uh, I used to write a lot of blog posts uh, at Vistage. I was actually uh, a Vistage uh, worldwide employee based in San Diego uh, from uh, May of 2010 through 2016. Um, during that time, I wrote a lot of blog posts. And 
one of the things that we were always looking at was why and how are these groups so effective and what makes it work, right? So first it was the kind of look at this kind of learning achieving cycle that we talk about, right? This idea that we learn better when we learn together, right? And, but the thing about a group is that we don't learn just for knowledge's sake. We learn, and what we also do together is we give each other the courage to act on that learning. And then all of a sudden, when we act on that learning and actually achieve something from it, that's something we want to do again. That was, you know, evident really early, um, just in, in taking a lot of time and observing groups and, and all of that. But the thing came down to also was, all right, well, that just didn't, doesn't happen because you put a bunch of people in a room and hope for the best. There have to be some things that make this all work. So I wrote a blog post, I think it was back in 2012, that was kind of the early stages of these five factors. And then through the course of writing the book, which really came about, uh, the book was published in 2016, it was called The Power of Peers. And while I was there, after having lived, led a branding refresh uh, for Vistage at the time where we did a lot of focus groups and you'd ask people, how do you get better? How do you develop? Um, and they'd read books, they'd hire consultants, they'd go to executive development programs at Harvard or Stanford. Nobody's mentioning peer groups, right? Yet, when you think about how effective and how powerful they are, I'm wondering, well, you know, we've got to give this thing a narrative. We've got to kind of figure out what's going on here a little bit. So when and during the writing of The Power of Peers, I took those kind of initial raw five factors and really started researching them and then pressure testing them with uh, Vistage chairs, with tech chairs, Canada chairs, and with different um, leaders of peer groups all over the world where we refined them and fine tuned them uh, to the point where actually in the power of peers, they kind of are, are talked about like they're five pillars. Actually, in the book that I wrote after was what anyone could do, the other epiphany and kind of an obvious one, but they actually are a reinforcing loop. And so the right people can drive psychological safety, which then improves productivity, which then creates a context for greater accountability and then leadership. And then again, that becomes a reinforcing cycle as well. So, um, yeah. So it was, a, it was over time, just sitting probably with a cup of coffee really early in the morning, you know, kind of cranking stuff out. But, but I think the credit also goes really to the hundreds of people who pressure tested the concepts and the ideas and I think really helped fine tune them. So for someone who's like stumbling onto this podcast and stumbling onto your work, Leo, what is the one story? Is there a defining story that illustrates for anyone listening right now the power of these five factors? I'm, I'm looking for something beyond, you know, okay, here are the five, right? And we can detail them. But is there a story that captures the essence and, and the magic, if you will? So that's really interesting because um, one of the things certainly we discover a lot is that the five factors are very interrelated. I will say that one of the first workshops I did was a group that was together for 18 years and many of the founding members were still there. So here I am doing this workshop talking about how you can be, and, and this group's thinking, we got this. We, we've been together for 18 years. We got this all figured out. And, and I was kind of feeling a little bit of like, well, they could be right, you know, so let's see what this looks like. <laughs> but I will say, so as part of, you know, a story at least that I think was an aha moment for them, 
is once they started having deep conversations around each of these five factors, they recognized, as high performers do, they love to be coached, they want to be better, um, they saw opportunities inside each of these five factors. They said, you know what, if we made these slight little adjustments, even though we've been at this forever, even though we think we got this, we could be even that much stronger, you know, as a group. And it was fascinating how well they bought into this idea of using this framework. And I think it's important to talk about it in that way. This is not a prescription. I never go into a group or a cross-functional work team that I work with a company or anywhere and, and tell them what I think is ideal or what's best for them and all that. I help, I help them define that for themselves. And then once we do, we use the framework where they really develop their own plan for how to bridge the gap from where they are to where they want to be. And I think that's uh, probably one of the most powerful pieces of this. I mean, you know Tech Canada well, for example, and know the difference between someone who in an executive session in a Tech Canada meeting who comes to their own realization, owns their own solution and the difference between them moving forward and implementing that solution versus someone, here's what you need to do, right? And, and kind of telling you or getting a report that tells you what's going on. So very similarly, when you get people to own their own solution, when they can look at these five factors as that longtime group did, uh, it was a really powerful moment for them. And, uh, and once I knew that I felt like we could chin the bar with a group like that, then it had utility for everyone one way or another. So let's go through those five factors real quickly, Leo, because I think anyone listening right now wants to know what are the five factors? What's the framework? Yeah. And, and, so it starts really with having the right people, you know, whether it's the right group or the right team, um, you, it really comes down to the right people and the right people really is about, um, so let's take a, um, a Tech Canada CEO group, for example, right? So the right people would be what? People who share the exact same challenge of what it's like to sit in that chair and have to make decisions for an entire organization, right? Um, they are different because they may come from different industries and they grew up in different places or you know, different cultural backgrounds or gender, whatever uh, level of diversity uh, you might have among that group. But then what really makes the group come together also is shared values, right? The understanding that to be a strong contributing member to this group and participate in this experience, there's certain things about our culture and what we believe works that makes our group effective. So I think finding the people who uh, are that for you is really helpful. On a team, for example, um, I've often asked, because we've all made the mistake, right, of, you know, if you've run any kind of company or, you know, whatever, where you get this great resume, and the next thing you know, everyone interviews the person, everyone loves them, they start three months later, it's not working, and no one really understands mm. what happened. Doesn't And what we find out 99% of the time is it wasn't that the person um, is bad by any stretch of the imagination. They're going to go somewhere else, probably really successful. They're just not working here. And so oftentimes employees can be an incredible source to just sit around with them and say, hey, tell you what, what do you, what do you think is the difference between the person who makes it here and the person who doesn't? What does it take to be successful in this organization? And for CEOs that I've talked to who've asked that question based on a little lunch and learn that I've provided them at the end of meetings, um, they find it fascinating. And then they figure out, huh, 
Now, how do we interview for it? How do we assess for it? And then how do we have the discipline around passing on good people that we know aren't really probably gonna work here as well as they might somewhere else? So starting off with the right people, um, so whether really... it's hiring or whether it's a peer group you want to create, let's just say I want to create my own special mastermind peer group. Is that right. what we're talking about, Leo? It's the same thing. Sure, absolutely is. And they're, and, they, and they're both the same thing. And it really starts off with having the right people. Um, second, you know, the research that we've done on groups squares exactly with uh, the work that Google's done as part of its Aristotle project with regard to the importance of psychological safety. Um, you know, with a group, that looks, you know, like a situation where, you know, people want to feel that they can be open and honest and vulnerable. They want to know that confidentiality is sacrosanct, right? What happens in the room stays in the room, which feeds uh, their sense of psychological safety and willing to be open. Members are part of these groups. Um, and if you think about what they're able to do and the conversations they can have, because most of us, right, we show up in all kinds of situations where we have to put our best face forward all the time. They can come to this group and everyone just shuts the door and they can be real. And they can say, um, I'm having problems or I don't know something or I'm scared about something or whatever. And you can have this kind of conversations there. So the psychological safety becomes crucial. Um, in, in companies, you know, you pay a lot of money and you're hiring people. And yet if they don't feel that they can speak up or speak out or ever take a risk or something like that, then you're really limiting you know, the potential of what they can be providing in terms of value to your company. So psychological safety becomes huge, whether it's a group or a team. Mm -hmm. uh, third, we talk about in terms of productivity. Um, now in a group, we're, we're really talking about when you go into executive session, uh, what are the quality of the topics they're really talking about? And what is your discipline and some of the takeaways you get from those conversations, right? How productive, how meaningful is that for you? You know, at the same time, you look at companies and you say, great, We've hired the right people. Uh, they feel psychological safety. They trust one another. Are they as productive as they can be? What does that look like? Are we giving them the resources and creating the context that allow for a level of productivity that allows them to flourish? Um, fourth um, is culture of accountability. We've seen this in groups and teams where the very best groups and teams, their currency uh, as a member of that group or team rests with one another. It's not about impressing the leader. It's not about impressing the chair in the case of Tech Canada or the leader of a group or, or your CEO. It's the recognition that every one of my peers is bringing their A game every time they show up to work every day and that it's an incumbent upon me to accept personal responsibility to do the same. And you've just got that whole dynamic that is peer-to-peer. Uh, -peer. And then finally, on the leadership front, we definitely found that the best leaders of groups and teams were at least... Um, Clearly, we're not suggesting it's the only way to lead anything, but we certainly, in a prevailing sense, find this idea of servant leadership, the, the idea that the leader is there to make the team or the group successful, not for their own self-aggrandizement, right? But this person also serves as the steward of the other four factors, right? They're making sure that we have all the right people and they continue to conduct themselves in the right ways that... Um, create a great positive culture in the group, uh, that there is psychological safety, that it's never taken for granted. You know, it's very easy sometimes to say, oh, we've got this and not nurture it. It's, it's a little like having a, a flower and you decide, oh, it looks beautiful, but then you don't water it for three weeks and all of a sudden maybe, you know, not so much, right? Um, and, you know, or again, watching 
productivity, making sure that the issues and topics being discussed or being done so uh, in the right way, and that you continue to create context for culture of accountability. I don't ever see the chair or the leader of a team to be the enforcer of culture of accountability. It's counterintuitive if you kind of think about that. I, I think in some respects, though, they can serve as the backstop for it. And uh, so as long as they um, can show the people in the group or team the value of that culture of accountability, um, then that becomes really powerful. I think any leader listening right now, no matter what position they are in an organization, can see the universal beauty in your framework, Leo, to be honest. When you think about it, I'm just going through the check down, the, the people with the shared values, the psychological safety, then you marry that with productivity and a peer-to-peer -peer framework uh, environment, and then knowing you've got that uh, stewardship, that that says a lot. It's it, it, it's taken you your life's work to put it all together, and it, but it's not five easy steps. That's what I'm getting, Leo. It's not five easy steps for any leader listening. I, I, I talk about it as that they're simple, they're just not easy, right? <laughs> so, I mean, to your point, uh, they take work, they take attention. Um, and I think it's mostly about being intentional about it, about being thinking of it in that way. Again, you know, when I talked about the group that have been together for 18 years that I talked about, it isn't that these things aren't part of how they work or what they do. But when you actually sit down and are intentional about looking at each of them one by one and looking at opportunities uh, within what they're already doing, um, you know, that, that became uh, really powerful for sure. The, you know, we call this the leadership standard, Leo, and it's all about, you know, fresh ideas to go full throttle in today's rapidly changing world. Question, how did you evolve into a leader? I know you've got a, a background with Seton Hall, so you must be a pirate at heart, but what was there, was there a moment when you realized you're the guy? I think people would be fascinated to hear that. So I'll, I'll tell you one story that was kind of fun. So um, back in my 30s, it was my, probably my early 30s, I was um, president of a, a PR subsidiary for a large ad, ad agency in Florida. And I remember, you know, we were building our team, we're growing, we're having fun. I always considered myself very much just one of the folks there, right? We had hired a woman um, to join the team. And um, about three, uh, three to four weeks in, I was approached by two or three of, the, of my employees who, and this is something they would never do, right? So they came and they said, hey, we feel really funny about even saying this, but the new woman you hired is great and all that. But I have to tell you that when we ever ask her for help, you know, because oftentimes things would happen and you'd have to, everybody would kind of pitch in and just kind of do their thing and help whoever needed it at the time. He said her response usually is, nah, I'm not going to do that. It's really not my job. You know, knock yourselves out kind of thing, right? Just really had a lot of attitude about it. So my response in that moment was, God, that's so funny. Every time I ask her to do something, she's all over it. It's like, no big deal. And they look at me like, are you serious? Like, you think there's no difference between you asking her and us asking her? And in many respects, I kind of didn't, right? At least hope there wouldn't be. But I think that, um, I think there was that moment where it's like, huh, okay. I've got to kind of own that and recognize that a little differently. The other thing, 
was when I owned my own firm uh, shortly thereafter for a while. And I remember just realizing that my words were live ammunition for everybody in the room, right? In other words, you, you literally have like, I might say something and then someone would, would like commit budget toward it. And I'm like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. You know, <laughs> there was a little bit of that <laughs> feeling about it. So it, it got me, again, you, you kind of feel a little more ownership of, you know, the weight that I might carry in any given situation or moment, depending on what room you're in and what the subject matter is about. And just recognizing that, you know, I, I have to understand and accept responsibility for that and do so in a way that's responsible. You know, any study of leadership, Leo, inevitably comes back to the power and the influence of, of early mentors. Who were some of yours? And can you recall some of those specific examples or folks in, in, in you know, on your journey that have, that have really helped you? Yeah, um, I wish I had mentors who weren't negative influences and showed me what not to do kind of earlier in my career. That was one thing. I will say that, um, so a couple things there. One is that um, I think there are a lot of things. You see all these people leading the same way, very command and control, very much about not really praising anyone, just screaming at people for whenever they make the smallest mistake, things like that. And you've, you go through enough leaders. I remember reading the, uh, the Leadership Challenge uh, by Jim Cousis and Barry Posner. It's like in its sixth edition. It's been translated into 22 languages. You know, somebody clearly thinks they know what they're talking about. And when they talked about leadership and what that looked like, it was the first time I really felt like I, I got some kind of validation that, oh, maybe I'm not crazy. Maybe there really is a way to lead people that isn't, you know, um, you know, um, that, you know, I, I read um, uh, a book by Robert um, H. Thompson called The Offsite, where the metaphor for leadership in that book is not uh, found in the hotel manager or the owner or anything. It's in the groundskeeper. And the groundskeeper is, is right. He's making sure that the environment for the plants to grow is what it needs to be. They're getting their water, they're getting enough sun or not. If, they, if they're in a spot where they can't flourish, they move them. You know, all of these kinds of things that you kind of see and, you, and he's not screaming at the plants to tell them to grow faster, right? He's, you know, this is an easy kind of thing to see. Um, but then uh, later in my career, uh, there's no question that um, working uh, with the CEO of Mullen, uh, when I was there for a while, his name was Joe Grimaldi. Uh, Joe was an extraordinary leader. Um, he was definitely that guy who really challenged everyone, but really supported everyone in a big way too, and really provide that incredible balance, uh, really cared about people. I remember we pitched a, uh, an account in New York one day and the whole team is there. Um, we're pitching this business. That it was like a four hour presentation presentation ends, he gets a call like right away. And apparently it was something very important, kind of took him away from everybody. And all of a sudden we're packing up. No one's really thinking anything of it because we've got to take a plane from you know, New York to Boston. And anyway, we get home that night. We get this, every one of us has this email saying that, you know, what great job we did, how sorry he was that he got a call that pulled him away from the team. He felt he failed in his role as chief encouragement officer in that moment 
and said that regardless of whether we win the business, we don't or whatever, that um, we've got a lot to celebrate. We've got a lot to feel really good about. It made everyone on the team uh, feel like a million bucks. In fact, at the very end of the presentation, you know, earlier in the day to the client, he looked at the, at the client really kind of squarely in the eye as they're sitting there at audience. He says, you will never find an agency who will care more about the success of your business than we, than we will. And I was sitting there on the team thinking as I was hearing those words, I wanted to tell that audience, having had all kinds of other experiences in this, he's right. That's who he was. That's the culture he created. And I'm thinking he just delivered that line in a way that wasn't just a line. It was a real deal. And, um, and very fortunately, the client recognized that. And uh, we won the business that day. But uh, I think um, Joe Grimaldi was an extraordinary leader. And um, yeah. So when you unpack it all, uh, Leo, and you think about the two books you've written, uh, the hundreds and hundreds of blogs and all the presentations with executive groups, you've done all these very personal real life experiences. How would you condense and give us the Leo Batari definition of leadership? In other words, how would you define leadership? I don't know if I can give it the dictionary definition. And I, I, think, um, I think really great leaders care about people, not just employees. Um, they have clarity. Uh, they're transparent. Um, they are looking ahead uh, when others uh, need to be doing, obviously, whatever uh, the task at hand um, you know, is all about. I think they can uh, challenge you in a way that a personal trainer challenges you to do a little more than you might do if left to your own devices. And at the same time, um, is not you have to trust that they're not pushing you to do more than you can do. You're not going to injure yourself. You're not going to hurt the company. You're not, you know. And I think when we have people who lead us and they can hire people that um, can surround us also, you know, part of leadership also is building the team where it isn't just my dyad relationship with the leader, it's more of a triad, right? It's the leader, it's the team, and it's the individual. And all of us have a role to play in results and culture and accountability. You pick whatever you want to put in the middle of that uh, triangle. But I think leaders who um, do that, um, to me, are, are kind of Pretty, pretty powerful and pretty good. So that's a really long answer to a, probably an easy question, but yeah, there we go. You know, Leo, I'm sure you've heard <laughs> this. Um, yeah, but it's the Leo version and that's what we're exploring today. And that's mm. what, one of the things that we find fascinating here in the leadership standard is it's, it's a topic that we'll be debating and analyzing and dissecting till the end of time. It, they, you've probably heard the phrase, uh, there's no better failure, or sorry, there's no better teacher than failure. Can you recall a vivid moment where there's something you failed at, stumbled, dropped the ball? One of those defining moments where you learn the hard way, a situation maybe you would have done differently. Sure. <clears throat> so there was a, um, back when I was at the William Cook Agency and I used to handle a lot of crisis communications um, there. And there was a situation with a particular crisis without getting into the whole long story. But the fact of the matter is I uh, underestimated what the ramifications of this thing could be. And it really um, cost us, quite frankly. And I thought to myself, you know, never doing that again. 
you know, because for whatever extra work it takes you to prepare for what even might be a 5% chance of happening, it's really worth it, you know, and you really have to take that extra step. And if you think about as leaders, you know, one of the things that I talk to leaders about all the time when we look at, um, you know, uh, the, the valuable interaction uh, productivity um, piece of this is asking the what if questions. You know, what if my building were to burn down? What if my number two uh, mm. left tomorrow? What if this were to happen or that were to happen? The, the, the idea of thinking through these questions and actually thinking through them with a group is really remarkable, right? Because if, I, if I've got this what if question, like what if my CFO left tomorrow? What would that look like for me? Well, I've got to be thinking about that. May not happen, maybe a 2%, maybe a 0% chance it'll happen, but to be unprepared for it because you get hit by a bus or I mean, I mean, seriously, you just don't know. Um, so when you sit down with a group of colleagues, again, who share the common challenge you do and you ask the what if question and either whether you present it openly and had everyone consider it together or I would go to the group and say, tell you what, here's a what if question I had. Here's how I've been thinking about it. What am I missing? And then I get that feedback from everyone. And with that also is a gift back to everyone in that room that will help them maybe be uh, um, prepared just a little better if the same thing were ha happened to them. So, um, you know, I, th I think that kind of stuff and, and it, it, that really taught me the value of that. And by the way, the importance of that and the fact that, you know, when we think about as leaders, what's our responsibility? Our responsibility is have really good answers to those what if questions. Uh, you know, I've picked up uh, an unmistakable theme just in our conversation here, Leo, and it goes back to the five factors. It goes back to the essence of pure innovation. But is there one story from someone who's applied these principles, uh, whether it's a coaching or consulting client, anyone, where it's really touched your heart? You, you went and said, wow, this concept really has traction in the real world and someone's actually moved forward with this in a significant way. Yeah. Um, and I, I can't name the, uh, the companies um, specifically, but I will tell you that um, it was a cross-functional work team that I worked with who um, was very siloed in the way they looked at things. The interesting part was when I spoke to the members of that team and I said, for example, to someone, um, to the marketing guy, hey, what does a finance person do all day? Like when they get in in the morning, what do you think this person does with their time? They don't have any idea. Now, and they said, he says no to me all the time, you know, things like that. And they would laugh. And, and this is how these things happen, right? I don't know their job. I know he says no to me all the time. If he says no to me enough, I'm thinking he's a jerk. He's uncooperative. He's all the, and all these, these narratives and all these things start taking place, you know, with people because human beings are really bad with information gaps right? If, if there's something we don't know, we'll, we're going to fill it in with our own story, whether we're right or wrong, and we're usually wrong about it. You know, we make assumptions all the time. So I think once I, I felt like I was able to get people to have conversations about their jobs and their, the opportunities and constraints and all the things and the intent actually that people have with trying to help one another, and also to get people thinking much more in terms of the larger enterprise versus silos, right? Because oftentimes this cross-functional work team would come to a meeting and they would come as ambassadors for their department, 
right? Like I'm here, I'm from marketing, I'm from HR, I'm from finance, and they're there to protect their turf and defend their people and to protect their budget and whatever it happens to be. When the reality is, when you put those people together in the room, they need to have their company hat on, not their department hat on. But you've got to build some trust around that. You've got to build some different mindset around that. And I think uh, for this particular company over the course of about a year, to watch that transition where they didn't look at everything in terms of press this and this happens, but they understood that my action here could have ramifications elsewhere. And I want to understand what those are. And I'm going to be really transparent about it. I'm going to get the input I need. I'm going to get the help I need. And they really started working together in a way that, um, you know, was powerful. And so, yeah, that's really gratifying when you start seeing that, because again, I came up with maybe just planting the seeds there, but they are the ones that made it grow. They're the ones that made it work. Um, and um, so, yeah. So what was the I'll moment someone turns to you when you know you, you, you got it? What was the moment someone turns to you and says, Leo? It was, a, so it was a, yeah. You know, it was more of a, um, it was more of a, um, a follow-up when someone told me that there was some situation they had and then they told me how they went about approaching it and how they worked on it together. And I'm thinking, you would no more have done that a year ago, you know, but yet that was the way they attacked it, what they did, and they, and they saw it, and again, it becomes proof of concept to them, proving it to themselves about, you know, what that looks like. You know, one of the stories that um, I often tell, I'm gonna go back to uh, my time at, at Mullen, um, when you talk about culture. And so if you were to deliver a package to the front door of this ad agency, it would not be uh, unusual to hear like people in back offices like arguing with one another in ways that you'd be like, whoa, a lot, of, a lot of conflict here. A lot of people don't like one another and all that, right? The reality is that when you're there, they're not fighting against each other. They're fighting for the best idea. In this culture, they kind of understood that we've got a lot of really smart people here who really respect one another a lot. The more we challenge one another, the better the work gets every single time we're all here because we want to create the best advertising in the world and we think the way to do that is to continue to challenge one another and and do that in a way that um they feel gets them to a great result every single time so that that's pretty neat stuff when you start seeing how the, those things work and you know i'll talk about some of those stories and there are teams that want to aspire to be that way they you know, people want to be part of a great team. They don't want to be part of a team that's in fifth place. They want to be part of a, what they believe to be a team they can be really proud of. How do we make that happen? And oftentimes, again, it's giving them the framework so they can reach their own conclusions about what they believe is ideal for them. It becomes, uh, I think, really gratifying. One of the observations I've made, and maybe you have as well, Leo, is that the best leaders are curious always curious. What are you curious about right now? What am I curious about right now? Huh. Now I'm curious about curiosity, I think, um, and crawling into that. Although, um, um, there's, there's a lot of good, uh, good books about that. Diane Hamilton actually has a good book about that, Cracking the Curiosity Code. So I'll give her a little, uh, little, little plug here. But um, I think um, I'm more curious today about people and what drives them and what they care about than I probably ever was. I, I, earlier in my career, I was definitely the typical, all right, we're all here, you're getting paid, 
here's the task, let's get it done. Now I pay much more attention to asking people about their family, about their lives, about what's going on with them. And, and not just to ask them because I think it's the thing to do. I, I like to think that fortunately, I, like all of us, we are all a work in progress. We evolve as humans to uh, you know, just try to be better and, and have a greater understanding of, of what really matters in this world. Um, so I'm, I'm very much more curious about the people themselves as people um, versus employees. And I'd like to think that in many respects, um, the circumstance we're in right now um, amidst um, COVID-19 and so many people at home and the way people are working together now that it's allowed people time to reflect on a lot of these things that are really, really important. You know, there are more CEOs today who are calling their people just to say, how are you doing? Not, did you get that report in on time? Not to, to complain about something, not to do anything like that, but just to say, how are you? And the power of that and the difference that's making in relationships in the workplace, I think has been really extraordinary. And the difference it's made with employees and relationships with one another also uh, is huge. When I, when I hear CEOs talk in terms of how collaboration is actually getting better in this virtual space right now. Teams are getting closer uh, than they've ever uh, been. And I think that's um, pretty great stuff. I think it's so true that uh, there is more and more uh, a trend towards a higher level of, shall we say, intimacy and less posturing in the business world. So in that spirit, on a scale of one to 10, how weird are you? Wow. I, you know, it's really, I, I wish I were more weird than I am. I, I kind of, I kind of, um, you know, yeah, I'm not really that weird. I don't think. Now, other people may beg to differ, right? But um, sometimes I wish I were a little more weird, you know? Uh, like, I, I, I see. I, I, I find that to be, you know, um, I, I, I admire it, you know, so... Like the little bit that I know is the James Taylor on the tape deck, probably on a mixed cassette going down a California highway. You've probably watched Shawshank Redemption a dozen times. You're a fan of the Red Sox and Larry Bird. Uh, weirdness. Where does weirdness creep in in terms of even who you admire that's weird? So a possible weirdness was one of the things you also may have seen was that when you think about stories or plays or whatever, uh, I think about Oedipus Rex by Sophocles. So I can be weirdly nerdy about certain things, or I will pull lessons from something that hit me for whatever reason. I don't always understand. But when I think about um, Oedipus Rex, for example, which, you know, obviously everyone thinks about it in terms of, you know, here's a guy that basically kills his father, you know, marries his mother, pokes his own eyes out at the end of the play. And that's kind of how they, they think about it. And not that everyone does. Of course, everyone sees kind of the, the bigger lesson in this was here's a guy who understood his fate from the start, did every single thing humanly possible to avoid that fate only to be walking right into it the entire time. And I'm thinking now there's a life lesson right? That every time <laughs> that we think we're going to try to avoid this other thing, you, you have to just kind of do what's right. You're going to kind of trust the force, Luke, a little bit. You got to, you know, uh, not get yourself hung up, 
you know, and all that stuff. So I, I think if anything, I don't know if it's weird, but I do probably have a, there's a lot of things that interest me. So I have a lot of kind of what some people might regard as eclectic kind of interests. And then it, and then I make connections with all those things in ways that I think have given me lessons that I hope um, others have found helpful as to me as they've gotten to know me over time and feel like, like I said, we're all a work in progress. We're all uh, evolving um, to your point too, about, um, vulnerability and openness, I think, um, not unlike what Jim Collins talks about with a level five leader was this really strong will, but I think um, a real healthy um, dose of humility, I think is really, really important. I think part of what has shaped and what I'd like to think is really successful about my workshop is I don't go in any, I don't walk in anywhere talking about being an expert at anything. In fact, you know, you were kind enough to kind of confer that on me on the top of the show, but you'll never hear me say it about myself. I think anyone who's really good and really knows anything about anything remains a student of it. It's how they get better. It's how they stay current. It's how they see themselves. And they don't think that they've, they're somehow stopped in time as some, you know, expert, you know, because I often wonder too, if someone's an expert and then you run into someone who knows more than you do about it, are they like more of an expert? You know, it's like, so it just becomes kind of a, a silly designation. So, so I like to think that, A, I'm a student of what I do. B, um, I think one of the things that this whole experience of working with peer groups has taught me is the power of people coming to their own conclusions, owning their own solutions. And for me, just try to provide a framework, not as an expert, but just to help facilitate that conversation and allow the intellectual capital in that room to shine. And um, so that's what's a lot of fun. And um, that's what, that's how I try to lead any workshop I'm doing. And, and probably if I were back in the workplace today, how I would try to lead any team going forward. Hey, Leo, just for fun in the spirit of weirdness and vulnerability, you can pick anyone, anyone at all. Who's going to play you in your film biopic? So, Leo Matari, featured in a Netflix original. Who's the lead actor? So the people who, um, the, the actor who people say I look like, which I'm not always sure how I feel about this one way or another, but I'm going to go with their thought that Billy Bob Thornton would, would play me in a movie. Yeah. <laughs> so now, there we go. Now that qualifies. That's, that's, that's fascinating. I think we're ready now for something we do with every one of these uh, episodes of uh, the Leadership Standard. It's the, uh, we call it the Lipton Pivo Survey in honor of uh, James Lipton from Inside the yes. Actor Studio and French journalist Bernard Pivot. Here we go. Rapid fire, Leo Batari, what is your favorite word? Love. What is your least favorite word? Hate. What turns you on? A great bottle of wine. What turns you off? A really bad bottle of wine. <laughs> What's... What sound or noise do you love? Ah, um, the uh, waves on the ocean. What sound or noise do you hate? Fingernails on a chalkboard. What is your favorite 
curse word. Oh, fuck. Sure. <laughs> what? Of course. <laughs> what? You know, it's what they would have called golf, by the way, if it wasn't taken. You know, you exactly. Realize, but, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Are you a golfer, by the way? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Good. Good I to know. Golf. I'm filing that whether away. I want to be, whether I want to call myself a golfer, but I, I play. Yeah. And I enjoy it. Well, and this might be it. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? Hmm. Sure. I'll go with golf. What profession under no circumstances would you never do? Ooh. Um, oh, I, I would never uh, be an airline pilot. Because the and, chances of me killing most of the people on board would be high. You know, I think I may have mentioned <laughs> that, yeah, any, any profession where there's little margin for error, you don't want me there. And if heaven, if heaven exists, Leo, what would you like to hear God say when you show up at the pearly gates? Uh, um, that I was a good husband and father. Do you have a personal creed or motto? The four or five or six words like you live by that define you. Well, it certainly become who you surround yourself with matters. And I don't say that just from because uh, it's convenient. I think it really matters a lot. I think the people we surround ourselves with make a huge difference uh, in our lives. And I think the better we are at doing that, um, the more of a difference we can all make. Yeah, we said from the top, it was, you know, uh, birds of a feather uh, flock together. We're all in the same boat. Do you give credence? And you just sparked that thought about you are the five people you surround yourself most with. I think the sentiment of it is right. I think the number is probably small. Uh, the, the number is probably larger than that. Um, but uh, I think the sentiment is fair. Leo, any uh, parting thoughts, any words of wisdom? And of course, how do people get a hold of you? So you can get a hold of me at um, leo at leobatari.com is email address. You can go to leobatari.com or purenovation.co.co um, to learn all about, you know, and, and there's a lot of content on there. And um, hopefully there'll be some things that um, you'll find resonate with you um, and be helpful. Uh, as far as any, um, you know, parting words, I think that it's really important to reflect on what we're going through right now. Take the lessons from it. Be thinking about how it may affect you personally, how it can affect the way um, you lead your teams, how they can work more effectively together uh, to focus on what really, really matters in this world uh, and in this life. And I don't say that as some kind of false construct that that impacts profitability negatively. It doesn't. In most cases, it's only going to make you that much more profitable, but you'll actually be more profitable in every aspect of your life, not just financially, but across the board. Leo, thanks so much for doing this. You bet. Thanks so much, Gary. Pleasure. Really appreciate Leo Batari for uh, joining us today. Uh, who you surround yourself with does matter. And if you do want to know more about Tech Canada and its world-class programs, check out the website, www.tech-canada.com. 
What was it that Leo spoke of uh, that made you stop and think? One of my biggest takeaways was, uh, and he slipped it in there, but your words as a leader are like live ammunition. And, and so you want to choose your words carefully. But also I thought it was very helpful to, to understand that there is a framework about how peer groups come together. And if you see value in peer groups, whether joining or starting one, uh, I think Leo's given uh, some valuable insight on a framework that you can use to uh, think your way through that. But what was your uh, big idea, your biggest takeaway? Always uh, feel free to share your thoughts with me. It's uh, the email is gair, G-A-I-R, at uh, garemaxwell.com. If you enjoyed the leadership standard, feel free to share with others in your networks. Yes, we, we encourage you uh, to like, subscribe, share this content. So, because you never know, we just might be able to uh, inspire someone else uh, when they hear uh, an expert like Leo, the eternal student, grab hold of the clutch, kick it up a gear, and go full throttle in this new frontier. So on behalf of everyone, Alexander, Kat, Mark, everyone at Tech Canada, and the Leadership Standard, thanks so much.